Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning and for um, the fact that you have been kind to really most of us in this room. We have a ton, and it's a mark of your kindness. And so would you, Lord, as we talk about um, contentment with godliness, as being a great gain to us, would you help us to pursue you and would you make the wealth that is the living God be dear? Would you help us, Jesus, to see um, our own struggles with contentment and free us in faith and repentance to come to you and to be filled up with you and to be satisfied in you. Because we come asking in the name of the one who promises to feed us and fill us, even Jesus. Amen. Um, so, I, um, you know, this is the thing. I, I don't know where people are in the room. I have never known poverty. And uh, I don't, again, I've said it again and again, I don't want us to feel false shame or false guilt about what the Lord has provided us with. That's not my point. Um, But this is a good kind of passage uh, where Paul is addressing, in in one aspect, false teaching, but another aspect, us, in terms of contentment with our material possessions and what we desire. And I think it falls into three places. One, godliness is a means of gain and its effect on the church. Secondly, godliness with contentment as actual spiritual gain, right? Paul does this double play on words, right? That some propose that godliness is a means of worldly gain, which he's going to say is wrong, and then godliness as a means of spiritual gain, which he's going to say is right. And then lastly, he returns to this idea of the desire to be rich with material gain and the effect that that has on the heart. So, godliness is a means of worldly gain, its effect on the church. He starts in these first few verses and talks about the nature of the teachers. And so, there are teachers actually in this uh, age and area. Yes, would you take those maybe? Does anybody else need a handout? Here they come. Thanks. Uh, he is taking these. And he's saying that, look, there are teachers out there who are teaching a different thing. And he starts off with this if statement, right? If anybody teaches something different than this true gospel that um, we have been trying to line out this semester. And we said that Paul doesn't always say particularly what the true gospel is. But again, he's contrasting here. If anyone teaches a doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of Jesus or with the teaching Okay, that what? Now, I think this is a beautiful thing. If anyone doesn't teach this doctrine or a doctrine that accords with what? With godliness, right? That the words of Jesus and the words of Paul and the doctrines of the gospel, they are actual doctrines that accord with the godliness of the people, right? To who those words are coming. And these teachers are doing these things, right? Right? They're teaching a different doctrine. 
And they're teaching a doctrine that's not in accord with godliness. And then, (laughs) Paul goes after them. Okay? What does he say about these teachers? In in verse 4, what are the first two things he says about them? They're what? They're puffed up. And they are... Yep, puffed up with conceit, and they don't get a thing, right? They don't understand a thing, right? They are conceited and arrogant. They don't understand anything. And then they have these unhealthy cravings, which are what? Now, this is, you know, for every teaching elder... I think who teaches on this stuff, there's just fear and trepidation as you wander into these things. Every elder, right, who teaches, that if you teach doctrines that are out of accord with, right, those sound words of Jesus or doctrine that doesn't accord with godliness, this is the thing that Paul is kind of writing upon. And it's going to come into his view of money in a sense, but what does this produce, right? So there's this first section. There are these teachers who are arrogant and they're self-centered and they're conceited and they really don't understand anything. And what does it produce in the life of the church? Because I think this is the danger of it. Paul has always got this pastoral concern about what happens when false teaching and false doctrine slips into the church of Jesus. And we've seen again and again, haven't we, that there is this, it's why it's called the pastoral letters in part. There's this huge pastoral heart of Paul for the protection of you. What do these teachings slip into the church? Now, he's talking about the teacher, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce, I think both in teachers, but also in the church, What? What do they produce? Trouble. <laughs> they produce trouble. <laughs> yes, ma'am. That's well. Again, so Paul has not always been yes. So he's talking about that. You know, part of it is the genealogies. Part of it is these theological debates over the minutia that create division in the church. But part of it is their view of whether or not. Godliness is a means of gain. Right? But, uh, my, we're, we're Rogers and Hammerstein people. The only thing that slips into my mind when you, you know, is trouble right here in River City. Right? That's the thing that comes flooding into my head. I'm sorry. Okay. It produces envy? Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. So it's, so it's interesting. I, I, I want to be careful that as we talk about 
I mean, there's a very real sense in which the health and wealth gospel, which you know, I would say is actually not part of our doctrinal belief, but is vibrant in America, right? But, um, yes, that's wrong. And I've seen, I've got a good friend who planted a church in Tulsa who has said to me, what is interesting is that in Tulsa, you have people who are so hidden from the rest of the church because they've been told that if you're faithful, you will be blessed financially. And he said, so what you have is, is you have folks who are living this outward life way in debt because they desire to be seen in the community of the church of those who have been blessed by God and therefore as faithful, materially blessed. And so they, are, they have bought houses that are way above their means. They have bought cars that are above their means. They're living in debt and they're living in secrecy because they don't want anybody to know that it's not really true. Or they're confused. Now... The, the reason I don't want to spend all our time on them is because them ain't us. <laughs> if I can use terrible English, right? That's probably not a lot of us. But this doctrine produces in people an envy of one another. Because if some people are blessed financially and can say it's because of my godliness has gotten me gained, then the other people who don't have gain can envy multiple things about them, right? Their wealth, but of the more tender conscience people, even envy other people's godliness, which may or may not be true. And slander and evil suspicion and friction among people, and this is the hard part, I think. And I didn't write it in your thing, but I've got it in my notes that goes, okay guys, here's the hard part for us to hear, I think. And as I read the text and looked at the commentaries, he says it causes constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And I asked, who are the people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth? Is it the teachers only? And I don't think the way the language speaks, it is just the teachers and I think the danger of what he's saying is, and why you desire that your elders teach in accord with godliness and with the words of Jesus, is because teaching, right, creates and forms the people. And if there is consistent teaching along this manner, then what it does is it deprives the church of the truth and leaves people with depraved minds. That's the danger of it. Okay. So godliness is a means of gain and its effect on the church. You know? Paul turns around because they imagine that godliness is this means of worldly financial gain. That's what they're pitching. That for they themselves as teachers, they should get rich, but also at times that people, right, that godliness is a means of gain. And Paul turns it right on his head and he uses the same language, but he flips its meaning, right? Because in verse 6, and this is that second section, godliness with contentment is spiritual gain. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And Paul's word for contentment here is interesting. 
he uses the con- he uses the word for contentment that the Stoics used. Okay, that was the language of um, really self-actualization in terms of not needing anything, but being content with you and yourself. And Paul is using this language in an interesting way. He's not using it in the Stoic fashion, but he's trying to say that apart from circumstances, that godliness with this contentment is a real, real gain. Okay, what is the gain? What is the gain? Okay, peace of mind. Okay. Godliness with contentment. What is our contentment? Where is your fullness? Now look, I'm, it's Sunday school and so I'm asking for the Sunday school answers because I want us to actually know whether or not that is where we really live. Where is our contentment? What is Paul trying to say? (laughs) Is it in Jesus? Is it in Christ? Like I, like I, I know we all hate Sunday school answers, but the older I get, the more I want them to be true. Right, the satisfaction in God and His promises for you. The satisfaction of the love of God as your Father. I, 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 I'm, okay. Spiritual bread, right, and living water, and the freedom of the things from this world that are temporal. He's actually trying to tell you that if there can be contentment, with the godliness that the Lord has called you to. There is great gain in this life and in the next. And the argument that he uses is interesting, isn't he? What does he go on to say? Because he says, look, let me bookend your life for you. What did you come into the world with? Now, he's not talking about like some people are born to rich. Like, he's trying to be literal in his language of nakedness. What did you come into the world with? What will you take with you? Not a thing. Right? But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Now listen, I think that's an interesting statement, isn't he? What does Paul not say? Why does he use the language with food and clothing? And the language he used for clothing is actually a little more robust than just clothing. I think Paul is actually making this plea to this sense of if our basic needs, right, of food and clothing and shelter are met, with these we'll be content. What is he not trying to foist on people? What was Marx's big joke about Christianity? Marx's statement was that religion is the opiate of the masses. Right? It's the ploy of the powerful and the wealthy to keep the rich and the wealthy and the powerful to keep the poor in their place and stupid so they won't actually know any different. So is Paul trying to look at people and say that the utterly destitute, they should just sing and whistle all day long? No. 
Okay? I don't think he's not, and I don't think he's offering like utter destitution and poverty as some Disney film where bluebirds are on your shoulder and you could sing and whistle and think life is great and dun dun dun, this awesome, right? But he is trying to say that there is something about your Christian state that draws you into a place of contentment. And look, this is a mystery of a Christian heart. With Christ and the love of our Father as the source of our true contentment, if we have little of the world, Paul tries to say that we can be content and that is a beautiful gain. Now, Let's just take a couple minutes. And I, I personally, I have struggled this week. Actually, I've been dreading teaching this since it lined up on my calendar. Because this is hard. Honestly. Personally, this is difficult for me. Hold on, Max. I'm coming to you every week. I'm coming. I am. Um, and I, I've read, you know, Proverbs 30 a bunch in the past few weeks that's there on your thing. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This idea of godliness with contentment being great gain. Can we take a couple minutes and, and just, you know, if I, if I think about four categories, I think about people with a lot of money who are Christians who are content, who I know. And people who have a lot of money who really are not, who struggle with it. And I know people with little money who are amazingly content and joyful and happy in the Lord. And I know people with very little money who are always talking and always fretting and always angry about what they don't have. And I've got to say it out loud. Again, it is not false guilt that I'm coming. But I have never had a day where I have not had food and clothing. I I get that. Just for a second. What? What has the American dream sold us as a people? What's the American dream tell us? Work hard, get rich. He who has the most toys wins. But... But come on, let's not let's not be yeah, okay, that's that's yes. Yeah. Huh? Ah. Happiness and you deserve it. You deserve to have it all. I like going to Hilton Head with my family. I love it. And the years we don't have it. But it's not just Hilton Head, right? And the thing is, is that what? Let's stop for a minute and ask: 
When it is hard to be content, what's the underlying question that plagues us? I'm going to come back to the positive of it, but Paul says that godliness with contentment is this great gain in our life now and later. So when we struggle to be content with the material stuff that we have, what's, what's behind that? Does God really love me? Yeah, and I, I struggle to believe that He... Yeah, does He care? The, the, I don't, the phrase from the back of the room, that somehow He has not done me right. So, I, 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 again, I need to be careful. When the furnace breaks, that's a big inconvenience. I get it. But I think what I want Paul to kind of drive us to a little bit in terms of our struggle with contentment, in terms of our material stuff is, um, do the little inconveniences that are material or little setbacks, you know, I think I want us to look and go for just a minute. What do they do to our hearts? Oh, yikes. They do reveal what's inside. So, can you stop for a second, and I'm going to do it, I'm going to stop talking, which is very hard for me. I want you to think about a moment, and look, I'm not saying that we don't believe the text. I want you to stop for a moment and say, Paul has said that godliness with the basics of life is a place of real contentment because Christ and all His covenantal promises are yours. Take a minute, let's live in awkward silence together and say, I want you to think of that time where those minor setbacks have come and your heart has been disquieted, and I want you to say why. And don't look at me. And the reason I do that for a moment is not to create shame. But to say, if we're going to talk about kind of this thing of godliness and contentment with gain, where does our discontentment lead us? Like, what should that do to us? Where should that take us? It should take us back to... Christ, right? I, I've, I've, I've run this by you, that old Annie Mame show, and I won't use the language. My wife is looking at me. She's giving me that look. Like, don't say it, don't say it. No, she's not. But I, I'll, I'll clean it up. That there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That's not from Annie Mame. That's the old hymn, right? And there's a fountain, and I think a lot of us fly by it on our way to the rest of our life. And I think what our moments of discontentment should lead us to is draw us back to the fountain. Right? I think what, I, what, what our struggle with discontentment ought to do is the freedom to lead us back to faith and repentance. Right? To come and confess to Jesus where our real discontentment lies so that we might fly to Him and find uh, His mercy.
and His restorative love and His kindness because because the food that is Christ is our real contentment. And rather than letting our discontentment only lead us to shame, I want our discontentment actually to lead us back to the food that is the gospel of God's mercy and kindness and grace. Now, so I've pushed you to think about discontentment, but I actually want you to take a minute and stop. And I don't know how to do this. It's funny, I will tell you, I've wrestled. I don't know how to do this without false guilt. Just personally, I've struggled. Because of the fact that I'm one of the top three richest people in the history of the world, I don't know how to do it without that little voice going, yeah, but. Yeah, but I mean, you've got... I I really don't know how to do it. Yeah, you live three-tenths of a mile from the south end of Colonial Country Club. I don't... Like, I know how to do this well, but I want you to stop for a minute and go, okay. You have all kind of suffered setbacks materially along the way in certain things or have had things taken or... But stop for a minute and go, do you know those seasons or moments? In those things where you have really tasted the sufficiency of the mercies of God being your food and that being enough. Um... Isn't that a good moment? Aren't those good places? When the the living bread and the water that makes us not to thirst has filled us, and we have seen days where we have been without, and we're undaunted by those days because the goodness that is the living bread has filled us. Aren't those good And again, I'll recommend to you this book. Jeremiah Burroughs, an old Puritan, he's got this book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Um, He's hard to read. The language is a little obtuse. And I'm going to recommend him anyway because it's just, you know, if you can get used to the language, it's just this. He spent 250 pages really dissecting this for us. Like, What is real contentment in Jesus? And what causes discontentment? And how do we get contentment? It's beautiful. And I'm just going to... I put this quote on there for you, but I want to read it for you. It says, Mark, here lies the mystery of it. And look at me. I think this is a mystery. I think this is a spiritual mystery that Jesus provides through the gospel. It is hard to explain... And sometimes hard to get, but it is a great spiritual gospel truth that is mysterious. He says, here lies the mystery of it. A little in the world will content a Christian for his passage, but all the world and 10,000 times more will not content a Christian for his portion. A carnal heart will be content with these things of the world for his portion. And that is the difference between a carnal heart and a gracious heart. But a gracious heart says, Lord, do with me what you will for my passage through this world. I will be content with that. But I cannot be content with all the world for my portion. So there is the mystery of true contentment. 
contented man, though he is most contented with the least things in the world, yet he is the most dissatisfied man that lives in the world. A soul that is capable of God. And by that phrase, I think he means a gospel Christ-inhabited heart, right? A soul that is capable of God can be filled with nothing else but God. Nothing but God can fill a soul that is capable of Him. Therefore, you will observe, and this last thing is beautiful, that whatever God may give to a gracious heart, a heart that is godly, unless He gives Himself, it will not do. For example, a godly heart will not only have the mercy, but the God of that mercy as well. And then a little matter is enough in the world. So be it, he has the God of mercy which he enjoys. Yes. Come on. No, would you? I'm. Yes. Okay. And so if I heard you correctly, contentment is not just an issue of material. Yeah, because, you know, it's not um, culturally, money is a big deal, but what, <laughs> what, what are all the reality shows about? What's American Idol about? Fame. It's about your 15 minutes or 12 seconds on YouTube infamy. Right? I mean, so like, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of different areas, and justice is one of them. I just, I wanted us to just spend a couple minutes kind of going, Paul and Jesus wants you to have a life that whether he blesses you with a lot materially or a little, whether you have it for a period and then He takes it away, which if we have it is, is all of our secret fears, that what He will do is provide for us enough of Himself that our souls with joy can be content in this world. That is what Jesus wants for you. Um, okay. So, he ends with this desire to be rich and the effect it has on the heart. So, down in verse 9, those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation and traps, snares, and to senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin. Okay. Senseless and harmful desires and temptations and snares, what are they? What are the temptations that a desire to be rich? What are the traps? Right? 
And he, he puts it together, he, he runs this in, the love of money is a root of all kinds. Now, he doesn't say that money is the only root or the total root of all evil. He says specifically that money is a root, there are others, okay, of all kinds of evil. It's not the only. But what is a love for money, a deep desire for that to be the central thing in your world, your gain? What, what are those Traps and snares and temptations. And what are the problems? They become the center of your life, the thing you worship. What does it breed? More. There's never enough. Jealousy. Selfishness. Right? What can it do to friendships? What can it do to families? How many of you have seen people, right, when someone dies, families just get absolutely and utterly destroyed by the arguing over stuff you cannot take with you? I'm not mad at you. I just watched it in my family. Tempts people to steal and to oppress and to forget God and to think they don't need Him. Is money evil? No. But man, the human heart right struggles. Um, and yes. What do you mean? Yeah, maybe even that sneaky thing of I did it. It's all me. And I, I think this is a healthy conversation. Like, I, as Christians, again, I don't want us to just simply be on the negative and the shame. Like, the Lord, how do we kind of struggle with this tension of God has given you gifts and abilities and a good mind and a sharp business sense? And some guys are actually, they just have this intuitive ability to make the right decision at the right time. And we, and we appreciate that. And the church benefits from that, right? I don't think we deny any of that stuff. We shouldn't. But that subtle pride that is a temptation to sneak in and think, I'm just that good. Um, and I, look, and the last thing, and I think it's worthwhile, is it is through this craving, and this ought to make us, in a right sense, fear, through the craving that some have wandered away from the faith. And pierce themselves with many pangs. You know, Jesus' words, right, I think are the thing that ring clear here. You cannot love both God and money. 
right? You can't love them both. Okay, as the people of God, and again, not false guilt, not false guilt, not false guilt. Don't want any of it. As the people of God who live in the 21st century who are wealthy, by definition of, in some ways, you sitting in these seats, what does this lead us to pray? There's that slow-pitch softball for you. What does this plead us to do? What does it make us plead God to do with us? Make us generous. Jesus, please, please feed me with Yourself. Please give me a love of Your mercies and kindnesses as my greatest good. Please, please, please. Right? Would the gospel graces and mercies and goodnesses be the thing that are central and most dear to me? Right? That's, I think, where, it, where we want to be. Okay? So, okay. Man, we finished early. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for um, thanks for the privilege to just talk about this. I I don't think many of us, but if we do, Jesus, think that um, that godliness is the way we should get rich. But there is a sense, Lord, that our hearts struggle at times to think that if we do the right thing, God, and we follow you, shouldn't you? Shouldn't we be entitled to the American dream? And forgive us for that. But Jesus, feed us with Yourself and give us contentment. and Give us the things that are needful, Lord, please. Um, we don't want to... We don't want to be wealthy and forget You and be those who don't recognize your voice or your kindness. Jesus, please keep us from poverty lest we steal and we again go against you. God, make us to live in the contented place that Christ is our food and our riches and our portion. That it's a good place and It's enough. It's more than enough. And we give you thanks. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.